Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, Neil, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's an absolute pleasure to join you today. Oh, my pleasure. So our paths cross where you came to one of the primary care networks I'm supporting and you delivered a presentation on how you are utilising a scheme called the Additional Role Reimbursement Scheme. And we were all a bit like, oh my God, it really gave us a bit of a kick up the bum. But I, why I wanted you to come onto the podcast is because... In that presentation, you came across that you're quite happy to take a risk, happy to try something you haven't tried before, and you're just a little bit like, well, just jump in, well, let's just try and make it work versus see the barriers. And I thought our listeners would love to hear kind of what has led you to that approach. Have you ever gotten into any trouble? And just to kind of go from there. So could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, well, sorry, you've just psychoanalyzed me. You've <laughs> was here she completely agree with you absolutely I mean I really first of all you know I'm a GP by background I've got formal management training so when I was an undergraduate I did kind of a healthcare management degree I never knew how useful it would be um, but in reality it's been very useful um, in terms of thinking through from strategy to accounts to business to you know that side of the world and so I guess for me, I just really love that business side and I love the clinical side. And, you know, putting those two things together is what really motivates me. I also, my parents are both GPs and I went to Imperial in London and then I moved to Peterborough because I guess I knew that my parents, one, had a GP practice that I could kind of step into. But two, I guess like now when I've got a six-year-old and a two-year-old, you know, I've got that wonderful support network of my family and, you know, my kids are getting to have so much time with their grandkids. And so, so really, I guess by moving into a family practice and by having an interest in management, I was really, really fortuitous because um, the doors kind of were there for me to, um, to step into clinical management. And so as well as learning how to be a GP, I also learned how to be a clinical leader and a clinical manager in my early years. So whereas most people spend their first five years, for example, doing very clinical roles, I had both that clinical role, but I had managerial roles. And by that, I guess what it was, was at the time, Peterborough PCT were in financial turnaround and they were really forward thinking and said, well, look, we need to get some GPs involved. And so I started doing some very small projects on things like, you know, sugar tests, glucose tolerance tests. 
I worked out that a bit of Lucozade and a couple of blood tests, you know, you could do quite cheaply compared to doing it in a hospital setting. And that saved quite a lot of money for the health system. And through that work, I guess I built up my portfolio. And when clinical commissioning groups were set out, I got the opportunity, I got kind of tapped on the shoulder to say, oh, would you like to, you know, potentially lead the clinical commissioning group? And if I'm quite honest, at the age of 30 or 31, I didn't think that I would be given that opportunity, but I was. I was supported by the CCG, supported by local GPs, and I became the accountable officer of Cambridge and Peterborough CCG for for a number of years, for sort of four four and a bit years. And, you know, after that, I've kind of gone on to have federation roles. I'm a clinical director in in a primary care network. And I guess I've gravitated to that blend of clinical and managerial type roles. And that's what really motivates me. When you took on the CCG role, did you ever find yourself out of your debt? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I, there was, you know, people now call it imposter syndrome, didn't they? And, you know, but absolutely for the first, you know, year and a half, I definitely felt out of my depth. And I definitely felt, well, what, you know, I, I've been given this wonderful opportunity, but, you know, am I up to it? And actually, for because I was kind of so young and, you know, although I... I probably had advantages of many of the GP clinical leaders because I had formal management training, but I didn't have the 10, 15, 20 years behind me that some of the others had. And so there was this lovely support package that was basically put in, which was, you know, everywhere from how to present, you know, how to chair meetings, you know, coaching and things like that. I'm a massive advocate for coaching. That's really helped me so much. I was put on NHS Top Leaders where, you know, I met so many wonderful people that have gone on to do some amazing things, including people like Claire Fuller. And actually the chief exec of the federation that I'm in was also on the course that I was on at the time. And so, you know, a massive kind of developmental package was put in with me and for me. And, you know, I greatly benefited from that and the experience of just getting on and doing the job. So with your clinical director hat on, you must see other clinical directors, some really experienced and some people that have just that threw their hat in the ring and thought, I'll try this. This looks, <laughs> this sounds easy, but they haven't had that support, that leadership support package. So have you thought about, well, this has been a key building block to my success. What what are we doing to support our clinical directors so they don't step down? Because they you know, like sometimes you don't know what you don't know, or it's a very hard lesson to learn this, you know, like in a public forum, you're constantly making mistakes or learning. And it does take tremendous resilience to keep rocking up to these PCN meetings when you feel like you're not progressing. Yeah, absolutely. So in our system, in the in one of the first years of PCNs, we kind of top slice some of the development money um, that went to PCNs. And myself, James Morrow, and Nish Manek. So James Morrow is from Granta. Nish Manek, obviously a key player in the next generation GP, worked together with the judge business school to put a put a course together, a new course that the judge business school put on. And that covered a range of different topics. It had it had both kind of subject matter topic, it had the concept of coaching and things like that. And it also it also brought together all of the clinical directors that wanted to be brought together, which was nearly all of them, yeah. um, for for this for a residential and then almost a six weekly check-in. And that was called we called that a grand title as you, you've got to have. So it's called the Primary Care Innovation Academy. And it was run by the Judge School Business School in in, in Cambridge. And 
obviously that was started before the pandemic. So lots of it were face to face. The residential was tremendous fun. And we, you know, for me, it's definitely, you know, some of the learning is, is developing those informal relationships is what gets you really far. Because as soon as you've got the ability to just WhatsApp someone or yeah. call someone when you don't know what to do, it, that goes a lot further than, you know, more formal emails and more formal settings when you're already in meetings. So so I guess we've put together this, this, this programme. It's still ongoing. I think we've got another kind of final wash up in December. Okay. And I think that will go into, you know, the potential for things like action learning sets and, and things like that. Cool. That sounds really, really good. And I would also give a plug, and I always do, to the Time for Care programme. Now, that's not about clinical leadership. It's about quality improvement. But I did presentation skills and just, you know, like around posture, the importance of data, how to tell a story, all of that stuff that you don't know you need to know. I could completely, I mean, so, you know, as a GP, one of the, you know, I'm a GP trainer. And so my trainees always find it really awkward when we have to watch back their consultations or listen to their recordings. And as a manager, as a clinical manager, it's also awkward, isn't it? Someone else listening in and judging you. But certainly one of the early reflections I had was almost, I was using my medical communication skills, which is to create space, to be quite soft, to be encouraging. But that's almost the opposite of the world that you you live in as a clinical manager, which is to have impact, you know, think about the pace, think about, you know, the stories that you tell. And so the worlds were very different. And so to me, kind of having some formal training experience and support in that really changed the way I think about it. Yeah, I think I even remember like how you walk into the room. Yeah, I'm a big fan. And I w- we were talking to quite an experienced leader. There are those that do management courses. And there are those that don't. And I would say you d- it depends on how you learn. There's no one fixed way. It is what you make it, I think. And sometimes if you do go on, I did an MBA, I absolutely loved it. I know some people that did one module and thought this was a complete waste of time. So it depends on what you're looking for. But sometimes you may think I'm not going to use that and then it's only like it's like a year down the line you're like oh I remember what that word means what's that framework and it all you know like it starts to click into play so my kind of advice would be if you're on a course it's not quite ticking the box stick with it if it really is bad just don't worry about it don't chuck away those resources I've got them in the back there don't chuck them away because one day it will be on the tip of your tongue something that you're looking for that will be really really useful but you don't have to do them and I know loads of people that have just you know like it's an apprenticeship they've just gone up and up and up and up so it depends what you're looking for and yeah that'd be my advice for me I had a thirst for knowledge because I did have that bit of imposter syndrome so I thought well actually by going on a validated course that's called NHS Top Leaders it gives you some confidence when you get into the role that you're doing it but definitely the value of the course was not was not really the year that I was on it it was afterwards and later and definitely you know it did just it changed the way that I thought about so many things and so you know for example you know often as a commissioner you end up having some really silly conversations with people about money which has nothing to do with patient care it's nothing to do with the values that we all have and actually you know there was a simple exercise where we just thought about a problem from different people's perspectives you know think about it as the commissioner think about it as the director of nursing think about it as the CQC and the regulator and some simple exercises like that you know can really change the way that you see problems and tackle problems. So one of the things that came across loud and clear is you just do it so we won't go into detail but there is a pot of money there's two options you go overspend and you know that you'll be able to recoup that money from another area that hasn't spent their allocation 
or as a practice as a PCN, you put your hands in your own pocket and you, you know, you replace that money. Now, that approach, I think, is quite rare. <laughs> like... Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And uh, again, you know, we, ha- we have lovely conversations in Cambridge and Peterborough with our commissioners who we all get on really well. And I was obviously in the CCG and leading the CCG for a long period of time. And so we've got really strong relationships. I guess for me, it's that bit of stepping back uh, whenever there is something going on and just looking at the situation and the situation for our area, Cambridge and Peterborough, is that historically there's been an underspending against that budget, the ARRS budget. There are practices in different positions and there are people that need that staff more uh, or less. And, you know, if you look at the kind of microscopic view, which is either my practice or my PCN, which is kind of 30, 40,000. So we've got 45,000 patients, but because of the waiting, there's this concept of car hill waiting, which basically is meant to represent workload on primary care. And, And it's quite a historic waiting that's been built up for many years. And for populations like mine, it really doesn't work. And so although I've got a really challenging population where 80% do not speak English, they are some of the most deprived people in the country doing really manual jobs with really poor contracts and all all of that, it takes my 45,000 down to about 30,000. So I miss out on 15,000 pounds worth, 15,000 patients worth of funding. And so when it comes to these budgets, I guess I kind of feel that for my practice and my PC, we don't kind of get our fair share and one of the things that I can obviously do in that situation is that I can lobby NHS England and Tara you know me I mean I've done that and uh, you know and what they say what they say when I lobby NHS England is well you know in your area you should be able to resolve this because actually areas are given a budget and so therefore you know why doesn't your area prioritize based on deprivation so okay fine so I'll start to have conversations then with the CCG to say well look you know I've got a really deprived population and I want to have more health and well-being coaches you know more paramedics to help my population and I guess the difficulty and the question that was asked when I came to your PCN was well will anyone underwrite that and that this is where we get to the risk and this is where I as I see it there's been historically about a million pounds on the spend I don't see that trend going away and so therefore when I look at the needs of my population I look at the red underfunding from my lens and I think well yeah absolutely I'm going to get a couple more paramedics and 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 see what happens and in reality uh, you know over the time of doing that in the first year we were successful at getting additional resource and in the second year we've been successful again at getting additional resource I don't do it with the hope of annoying anyone or or anything like that but you, you can do that by a byproduct because actually like you said the NHS isn't really built for that kind of thought and that theory but if I take it pure and simple this is about my patients and my patients will if I don't do things like this my patient population which is the reason why I've got a job you know will lose out and therefore I feel that it's I feel really strongly that it's the right thing to do. So for those of our listeners outside of primary care so what I've written down you know like if we take the principles of that outside of the specific nature of primary care networks you talked about fair share now is that like pure fair share or more or what you think is fair share if that makes sense yeah so fair share if you look at the excel spreadsheet will give you a certain answer okay. and fair share i think if you care for a population might give you a different answer and so kind of i guess the fair shares that i'm looking at is what my patients deserve and what my patients need and i think the answers are different 
yeah. you know, depending on what lens that you come from. And I, as an ex-commissioner, I completely get it. There is one pot of money and that needs to be distributed. And if a formula set, sets out funding in a certain way, then that's what the commissioner needs to do at first. As an ex-commissioner, I know that there is a, there is the ability to think laterally and wider, and therefore you know, and therefore have conversations about that deprivation. And like I said, when I've raised it with NHS England, that's what they've said. They said, "Well, talk to your local CCG, talk to your region, and find a solution that works for your population." And I guess having done the jobs that I've done previously, it puts me in a position where I'm able to, I guess, get into the right conversations to try and sort out these problems. So the principles around that. So I like how you said it. What your patients need and what they deserve, and that is is based on data in that local historical intelligence and that soft intelligence. You talked about lobbying the influencers. There is something, yeah, going back on the historical behaviour around this. There's a trend that happens over and over and over again. So that gives us confidence to make the decisions that we want to. And then there is delivering on what you said that you would do. So you took a risk once. People have gone, "Mm, okay. And then it makes it easier for those people to say yes, because you're building that track record of delivering on what you said that you would do. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Job done. Who needs an MBA? No, no, not not us. (laughs) Okay, there's something. So at the very beginning, you said because it was your parents practice, the doors were opened, but not all of the doors are open for you. They may be now. But they weren't in the beginning. You meant, I mean, you say 30s young. You know, I've got listeners thinking, God, if if 30s young, like I'm a baby, not me, but they are very young. But how do you open doors that you may feel are not open to you? Because not everywhere you go before they've gone, come in, Neil, because they may look at your age or look at your ethnicity and think, "Mm, no, just a no. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. So so certain doors were open. So the doors of the surgery were open. Yeah. I guess, you know, a conversation we could have is around my surgery. You know, my, my general practice has gone from 7,000 patients to 30,000 without any mergers, just by focusing on our patient population. So that's quite an interesting thing to work through together. But definitely through my career, that you know, there has been adversity, I would definitely say. You know, we have had a number of things like CQC inspections. I think I've survived about six CQC inspections, five of them outstanding. The latest one moved us to good. But, you know, there, there are certain challenges I think that we do get and we have to respond to those challenges. Career-wise, it's not always been perfect. I've not got every single job that I've, that I've gone for. And definitely, you know, I've had to prove and work as hard as I can to, you know, to make sure that I'm in the best position to get certain roles. I am lucky, I think, with the CCG job. I literally got tapped on the shoulder and someone said, I can see some potential in you. And, you know, I think you would be really good for this job. And so people, even though there was a de facto person in the role that was going to be the CCG AO, and they worked politically to position me and get me to kind of, I guess, grow my reputation, grow the work that I was doing and get into a position to do it. So, you know, when I say doors were open, some some doors were wide open, which was like, you know, an entry into the practice my parents wanted to exit but some of the other doors we've had to create you know I've had to work I guess work hard prove my worth do the do the the big p politics and small p politics to get myself in a position to have roles definitely outside of the ccg role where you did have help can you give us an example of where you've acted strategically to get you in the position to take the next step um, yes, yeah, so um, I've been the chair of uh, Greater Peterborough Network, which is a federation for three years now, and I must have applied 
about five or six times to get that role. <laughs> there was a lot of, you know, Peterborough um, now is actually quite a harmonious place, you know, compared to how it has been in history. And there were definitely fractions, different groups, different tribes. And I guess we, uh, not just me, but I and others worked really hard to try and unify the, the, the Peterborough voice and show a different way that, that leadership could happen. And I think for me, um, it has always been about trying to get benefits, not, not just for Thistlemore in my practice, but for Greater Peterborough. And when I was in the CCG, I found it quite difficult in some ways because I had to be all about Cambridge and Peterborough and the whole area, whereas actually having a role that's very focused on Peterborough you know, almost makes that a lot easier and advocating for the whole of that area. For me, it feels like a relatively simple task. And so as we can bring improvements to services, improvements for patients, easier access access and things like that, that enables us to grow that kind of thought that actually we are one, we are doing it as one, and we able, we're able to therefore uni- more unify the profession. Okay, so if someone's listening to this podcast and thinking, I want to grow my career, but I'm not I feel like I don't have the good examples, you know, around integrated care. So we talk a lot about system leaders. So there might be somebody thinking, I'm a leader. I may have delivered services across scale, across my borough. But how do I start to integrate services at an integrated care level? So I might have delivered services in primary care across the borough that might have had a little bit of, you know, like integrated care, but not true integration, not primary care, community care, secondary care. You know, that's like a whole nother ballgame, but I'm not quite there. So what sorts of questions do they need to be asking to think, Okay, what steps do I need to take to be able to develop my career so I've got the skill sets of system wide leadership and system wide care? So for myself, I've got roles on the ICS and the ICP, so the um, integrated care, the the total area, but also I am a co-chair of the integrated care provider, the developing arm. If I'm very honest about it, I think that actually for me, most of the change, I would encourage people to think if they think, oh, I really want a high level job, you know, working across the ICP and the ICS is kind of like, why do you want it? What are you trying to achieve through that role? And because obviously from my experience, I've, you know, managing, being the chief exec or accountable officer of a CCG, I cared for a million people. Being a GP, I care for 30,000 patients. Being in a federation, the scale is 250,000. For me, the sweet spot that I found through my career is the most change that I can make is as a GP and then at the place-based level, which is which is for my area, Greater Peterborough. And so I guess when, when I am in these roles uh, to do with the ICP, I'm continually thinking, how do I enable change to happen at that kind of more grassroots level? And so I guess the first question I would have if someone was saying, I really want a job on the ICP, how do I get one? Is kind of just thinking throughout why do you want that job? What do you think you're going to be achieving through that? And then, and then for me, my career pathway, I guess, was to do things at, at those at those levels of doing stuff in my practice. You know, improving the care that my practice gives. Go, you know, in, making the practice go from caring for seven thousand to thirty thousand, bringing in innovation through health coaches. You know, we have trained people who used to work in IKEA and and Amazon to become healthcare assistants, and so they help us. We look after the local community, they speak to them in Polish, and obviously then act as a conduit of information. So 
how have I done it? I've done it by doing things. Um, you know, so I agree with your analysis and that has given me the platform once I've done things at different levels to be offered the opportunity to do them at higher levels. When I've done things at higher levels, for me, in my mindset, it's all about taking it back uh, to the grassroots level okay. and making change happen there. So tell us about how you've grown your list size. What approach, if it's not like top secret, um, <laughs> have you done to have such massive growth? So I think the first thing was to kind of look at it as a thing that needed to change. So when I came to Peterborough, we had seven and a half thousand patients. There were, you know, and that, and when you have that volume of patients, it gives you a certain budget. So that budget can then be used to spend on doctors, nurses, and 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 those kind of things. Um, and so when we had the budget for seven and a half thousand patients we realised that actually that is not going to be sustainable. So Peterborough has got 300,000 patients worth roughly. And we thought, well, actually, what we thought the long term for Peterborough would be was maybe there would be five or six practices covering that population because it probably wasn't sustainable to have you know, as, as it was at the time, more than 30 practices looking after that population. And so the first thing was to decide that we wanted to grow. The second thing then was to think through what are the needs of our population. And actually at the time, and my parents' legacy, I guess, and my mum's going, uh, I'm accompanying my mum to Windsor on Tuesday. She's getting her MBE. Oh, that's so cool. She got awarded an MBE for a services of general practice. And some of those services were, one, the development of practice, but also they, they kind of introduced the concepts of healthcare assistance in general practice. Now that sounds really grand. And now when you go to general practice, you see healthcare assistance everywhere. But back in the 90s, there were no healthcare assistance in general practice. And so they had taken kind of models from America to do with healthcare assistance and physicians associates and applied that to the general practice workforce model. And with that brought some creativity to the roles of healthcare assistance and to the roles of nursing. So for example, you know, in, in my parents' day, nurses were not taking blood pressures which sounds ridiculous now uh, because nurses do so much for chronic disease management and long-term condition management but they kind of brought this concept of everyone kind of upping what they do uh, and people doing more and the reason they did that was the workforce challenges that primary care faces now was was massive in Peterborough so they couldn't recruit loads of doctors to do all these jobs so they upskilled nurses to do some of the jobs that were traditionally doctor jobs and they upskilled healthcare assistants to take on some of those nursing type roles and I guess where we hit the sweet spot was because we had built this cadre of workforce from the local population as Peterborough went through the migration boom of the 90s 2000s and beyond that's what really took us from looking after okay. a population of 7,000 to 30,000. And, and I guess what we did strategically was to think, you know, obviously, so I'm kind of a second generation Indian. My, my parents are Indian, uh, but they were they were raised in Africa, in Kenya and Uganda. And so they were mi migrants, economic migrants and political migrants because of Idi Amin uh, to the country. And so for us, we've always held the values of people that are new to the country, people that are from deprived backgrounds, et cetera, we wanted to welcome them. And especially that kind of migrant population to Peterborough, we wanted to do everything that we could do to give a Rolls-Royce gold star standard uh, care to that population. And so by focusing on a population that most practices didn't really want to look after, it meant that these people were cared for, it meant that they were attracted to an organization, and it's what led to this massive growth that we've, you know, that we faced. Sometimes, you know, I, I would love to invite you down to Thistlemore. You're welcome to come and spend yeah, a day with us. But if you see the building now, it's this massive kind of building that looks all purpose built. But 
Thistlemore was a was a one up, one down. You know, the waiting room was the staircase. You know, so we've gone from that heritage, I guess, from that history and that culture to now a three thousand square meter building that looks like it's a PFI, but it isn't, you know, and, and, and what's enabled us to do that is the growth in patient numbers. So by serving a, a bigger number and back to workforce, you know, I've now got 15 GPs, 12 nurses, three paramedics, three pharmacists. And so by, by growing that, you know, it's not made it more profitable. I'm not, you know, not driving a Ferrari or a Rolls Royce, but what it has done is it's given me a really good budget to provide, you know, to, to pay for a lot of people's mortgages um, to provide excellent care to my population. What's your view on hard to reach communities based on the nature of your population? I mean, it is just honestly, you know, as GPs, we all probably earn a similar amount of work. But I believe that those of us caring for these very challenged communities are basically we're we're giving so much access to society, and for me, that gives me this really enriched enriched feeling uh, about the work that I do. But absolutely, it is sometimes really difficult, really challenging. Uh, you know, for example, you know, enabling people to understand health as their priority when they are living hand to mouth, needing to pay rent, any time that they go to a hospital appointment, it's costing them money, both getting there because, you know, sometimes they don't have cars, and both the time lost because the contracts they have in employment don't allow and pay for their time to be in a hospital appointment is such a challenge. And, you know, every week when we talk through cases, we are wrestling with cases where we're worried about people having cancer, but they're still wanting to keep going on in their in their shifts and, and earning money. So, it is an absolute challenge, but it's a delightful challenge because I think once you're on their side, you know, the job is then, as I said, when it comes to the, the budget that we talked about extra with staff, well, I want to fight for my population to get that budget. When it comes to services around me, like physiotherapy and district nursing and diabetes services, well, I want them to adapt to my population. So actually, although it's massively challenging, it's also massively empowering because actually, like I said to you, you know, what really motivates me is making a change, making things better. And so I, I have got the population that you want to do everything for and you want all of these services to work for them. So actually, it's a massive platform to do a lot of social good. How do you manage your well-being with the values? Like, I've got so, this is an opportunity, but you've got a big team, lots of responsibility, and there's only so many hours in the day. Like, how do you, how can you switch off and be there for your family when you want to do so much for your patients? Really good question. I mean, I'm not saying I've got it right. I mean, you know, if you add up the amount of clinical work that I do and managerial work, it adds up more than, you know, there's more than a week's work in there. But I guess it's because I'm so passionate about trying to make things better and make make things work. So what's really helpful to me is is my, my wife and my family. So my wife, Emma, is a GP and I've got two kids who are six and, and three, actually not two. And I've got my, my parents are still nearby. Emma's family is still not nearby. So I've got this massive kind of support network locally. And definitely having kids and going through that journey is, is enough of a challenge and stress, isn't it? But having a family support in that way is really helpful. 
having parents that are medical and were part of the history and the DNA of our organization is just so helpful. So when I say we, I'm thinking about our current partners that we have in the organization, but also the people that have built up the organization over over years. So having people to sound off, people that have lived it for, you know, 30 years of their career, things like that, make it a lot kind of easier and simpler. But definitely the way that I'm wired is to be in in those situations and circumstances. When I left the CCG in 2016, I felt that, well, actually now I'm just going to focus on my practice and things like that. But I just got itchy feet to get back into kind of clinical leadership. And again, a few people tap me on the shoulder to do this, that and the other. And, and you know, if, I, if, if I'm honest, that I actually get benefit. I feel, you know, I love one-to-one consultations with patients and trying to help them. But I also love the management type meetings and clinical leadership type meetings about thinking about how to kind of improve and make things better. And so having that balance for me is the perfect week. How would you describe the culture of your practice in three words? Innovative, challenging and patient focused. What would you say your weaknesses are? Time management is a weakness. What do you mean? Um, so actually, keep, you, you know, I uh, because I'm so committed, I have to be very efficient with my time management. And so in some ways, I'm very efficient and effective. Um, but in other ways, I do still find it a challenge. So for example, I, I joined this podcast five minutes late and things like that. So, you know, because, because of various strains and stresses and fitting it all in, um, literally, sometimes my diaries are back to back, you know, over a whole day. And so I think back to that sustainability question that you were talking about and burnout and things like that, I think I need to get better at getting balance in that way and certainly I recently was fortuitous enough to go on holiday um, but the good thing about holidays it was amazing the bad thing about holidays as soon as you get back everything just gets crammed in doesn't it and so uh, you know sometimes obviously then getting back up to speed and, uh, and things like that is, is a challenge that I face. Okay so time management any other areas? I've definitely made mistakes over the career so sometimes you know getting that balance of of being in the detail and being strategic and I think I really enjoy it because I really enjoy being in the detail but sometimes we need to be strategic when we're strategic then sometimes we don't have the eye on all the detail and that can lead to problems and mistakes so I think kind of getting that positioning right is something that I'm continually challenging myself on okay and one more so you know being useful to my wife is definitely a major major problem i'm just you know constantly forgetting what i'm supposed to do uh, and things like that so definitely i should give a shout out to emma thank you emma for helping us uh, run our life but as well as the balance i guess it's being a contributor to domestic life isn't it and so i think you know over uh, you know fitting in as much as i do but you know there is a byproduct which is that therefore when i get back home i'm not as useful as i as i could or should be i would have thought what is the one thing that you think is like you do so well is your absolute strength? I think owning that leadership bit, you know, holding my values and making sure that my values come through in, in the things that I do. I think that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. Where you are, I would say a risk taker, have your risks always paid off if you've ever made a serious mistake? So with respect to risks, you know, one of the risks that we've taken along the way has been to grow the organisation, as we said, in terms of patient numbers. Alongside that, we've worked hard to grow our infrastructure as well. So um, 
And, uh, you know, if we're completely honest, we've not always done that in the correct way, which is to go through the NHS England application process and, you know, get, get permission for everything. We've tried to do that several times, but, but often kind of run up against bureaucracy. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the things that has been really helpful in our system has been there's been some really good work between the LMC, the practice and the com- commissioners to kind of understand and take stock of the you know of the patient growth that we have Um, but i guess in terms of serious mistake that has led to serious cash flow problems because where we've borrowed money from banks and you know often hundreds of thousands or you know millions of pounds do some developments then actually that money wasn't guaranteed in the end we've got there and we've got to a sensible solution but for many years it's led to i guess disharmony and challenge in terms of relationships because again if you know like I said, it's about my patient population. More of them want to register with me. I want to I want to care for them in the best way possible and employ as many physio, you know, physios or pharmacists as possible. Therefore, you need someone to put put them. And so from a from a pure patient lens, then obviously doing that is the really right thing to do. But from a commissioner lens, where you've got a budget that you have to manage things from and you've got ways of doing things, then obviously it comes up against that. And so that can really strain relationships. But as I said, you know, I think we've worked through a lot of those problems. Yeah. But at some times, I think people will go, well, that is, you know, again, back to your risk-taking kind of question, that risk-taking would be too high for most GPs and most yeah. And lots of people come on, we talk about productivity and time management, and we all say, we just need to say no more. (laughs) So when was the last time you said no to something which was really important, but not a priority based on your current workload? I'm struggling to think of that. That is not not the correct answer. (laughs) Because I'm sure there must have been, but, you know, I, I generally... Because I think my answer would not be no. It's it's generally how can I facilitate someone else to help you with that? So so um, it, there have definitely been times when so for example I was asked recently by someone in NHS England to look uh, happy to help with a piece of work that they're doing on um, HRT prescribing. And if I'm honest, uh, that's not an area of my expertise, um, and my time commitments don't really allow me to do it. So I have brokered kind of you know someone else to kind of help uh, in, in things like that. But no, I think that's something for me to work on. Well, no, that you, that was a good that was a good good example. That was a good example. If people want to connect with you, where is the best place to find you? Because you will likely say yes to whatever that inquiry is. <laughs> um, so social media, um, so Twitter. So I'm at Neil Mo. You're welcome to uh, follow me, but also tweet me and direct message me. I'm on LinkedIn as well. So, it's Neil Moder on LinkedIn. My practice is Thistlemore Medical Centre, so you're welcome to uh, look at our website and there's some contact details on there. Uh, and my email address is neil.moder1 at nhs.net. Um, you're welcome to give me some emails uh, and I'm really happy to connect. Thank you so much. I absolutely am delighted to come on your podcast and uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review 
I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.